Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from our business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Coming up on November 8th, we have our latest event in our business excellence series. This one is all about strategic wealth management. It's taking place November 8th at the Vancouver Club. For more information, visit BIV.com slash events. Today on the show, I'll speak with the chief envisioner of TELUS. He's also written a new book called Open to Think. You're listening to BIV Today. Some independent dealers have really struggled over the last six years to remain profitable. We've also seen in BC a number of boutique firms close or get acquired over the last decade or so. So it begs the question, what does the future hold for independent dealers here in Canada? Ian Russell is the president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. This is something he's been reflecting on and he joins me now to discuss. Ian, good to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you, Haley. It's a pleasure to be here. Who are our independent dealers? Let's start with that. Okay. And uh, I'm glad you started with that because the definitions are a bit uh, complicated. Um, But when we use the term independent, uh, we mean uh, not uh, bank-owned. So the bank-owned dealers who are part of the bank financial groups are very, very large and in terms of their uh, revenues in the business, they'd account for about 70% of the overall total. So they're overwhelming the largest, the largest uh, part of the industry. The independents are everybody else, so the other 30%. Um, but when we're focused on this work that I'm highlighting here, we call them independent firms, but for the most part, we're really focusing on the smaller um, independent firms. And frankly, Um, We've got um, about 160 registrants, roughly, that are investment dealers. So, you know, you take the six bank owns out, and so um, we're in at about 150. And if you take the large independents out, there may be four or five of them. So you're talking, uh, when you start narrowing it down, almost 150 small, uh, mid-sized uh, independent firms, and 90 of those firms would be retail-focused primarily, and probably uh, roughly 50% would be domestic institutional, and about 20 firms uh, would fall into the category of being foreign um, affiliate independent, so firms that would be owned by Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank and Merrill Lynch. Um, so that's really the complexion of the industry. And you mentioned it really is the big players that have 70% market share. When we look at these small independent dealers, why should consumers and why should businesses really care about whether they prosper or whether they flounder in the years ahead? Right. Um, excellent question. Uh, and the reason that we care about the small independent firms is that they provide uh, a diversity and um, a uh, and an additional um, uh, element to our uh, capital markets. So, so they had uh, diversity and a dynamism. These are usually um, innovative, changing firms, and we'll talk about that a little later. They're entrepreneurial in nature, 
both in terms of the way they approach their uh, retail clients and their institutional clients. Um, the retail firms also tend to be located, uh, interestingly, in smaller communities. Uh, they're quite diverse, actually, even the smaller firms in having branches in uh, smaller centers such as um, Kelowna um, in the west or the Kamloops. Um, so they're very regional, um, local in their focus. Um, and uh, they uh, add a competitive dimension, of course. And the most, probably one of the most important uh, contributions the small firms make, particularly the institutionally focused small firms, is um, they provide uh, a lot of the capital for small enterprise, which again is very local in Canada. Uh, the bank-owned firms are looking at much larger companies to finance, not the smaller, more local companies, which in the broad scheme of things, it's those small companies that are very critical to Canada's growth because they account for most of the jobs and most of the economic activity in Canada. So these small firms play a very important role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Now, when it comes to these small firms grappling with the prevailing market conditions, uh, how well yeah. are, they are they faring? Well, it's been tough um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, for the institutional firms, it's been tough because a lot of them were focused on the commodity markets, the resource markets, mining companies, small, medium size uh, energy companies, and that marketplace has struggled. So those firms have struggled as well. And for the retail firms, it's been pretty tough as well because, again, their competition are the big firms. The big firms often have the advantage uh, in offering a lot of different kinds of products, including uh, new issue products. So these are newly issued shares of companies. Um, and they also have the important advantage of scale. Um, so they're able to spread their fixed costs across um, a very large um, platform of business. So that's enabled them to carry costs a little easier. They, their per, per unit costs so to speak, are much lower. So uh, they have some built-in advantages. And uh, and again, the market conditions have worked against um, the smaller firms. And the other thing, too, is that the um, small institutional firms are pretty narrow. They're investment banking firms. So they're focused on raising capital for small, medium-sized businesses. And they don't have some offsetting businesses such as... Um, uh, say, a fixed income trading business, which in the past few years has been a pretty good business to be in. Um, they don't have the same diversity in terms of investment banking uh, business that the large firms have. So it's been, and then uh, the big firms have competed very aggressively um, for the retail customer and um, and also in some cases have moved downstream to mid-size um, companies for investment banking. So, for example, uh, the bank-owned firms have been more active, um, particularly in more difficult conditions where they've gone after uh, mid-size energy companies that have typically looked to uh, small um, um, the, the smaller investment banking firms. And then, without getting too long-winded here, we've seen structural changes in the market where 
pension funds that used to be buyers of small stocks um, now tend to be much more international focused than they were. Um, large institutions also gave trading assignments to small uh, uh, institutional firms. And now they tend to put a lot of their trading through algorithmic uh, black box devices, right. uh, which are in the uh, large largest firms. So they've lost uh, access to trading revenues as well. So, um, you know, they've had a tough go. Yeah, it sounds like a challenging context. You outlined some of the advantages of these firms. And I wonder, does the future mean that the independent dealers, they're not going to be independent? Might we see some consolidation as these aggressive players maybe look to the advantages these smaller players have and say, you know what, we can acquire that? Well, that's uh, that's true. But it's, it's very interesting um, on uh, a couple of accounts. Uh, first of all, in terms of takeovers, we have seen um, we saw a rapid pace of acquisitions, uh, small firms going out of business, small firms merging with larger small firms, small firms being taken over by bank-owned dealers. And I guess 2014, 15, in, well, 12, 13, 14, in that period, we saw a lot of that uh, corporate acquisition activity. In the last couple of years, it sort of tapered off. And I think it's tapered off a little bit because the small firms are starting to uh, regain their footing a, a bit more. And the reason that that is happening, both for the smaller institutional firms and the smaller um, retail firms, is they're changing their business models. They're looking at these changing markets and adapting fairly quickly. And that's a, a natural thing for a smaller enterprise to do. So I'll give you a couple of examples. On the retail side, Technologies played, as, as you're aware, a much, much bigger role um, in the retail wealth business. There's a whole array of um, applications uh, that have come into the business that have helped on the back office side for trading and clearing, order management, trading and clearing of securities. It's been very automated. Um, the There are firms that specialize as carrying brokers. Um, they have uh, provided more and more services to uh, smaller firms. And there's a lot of technology at the front end of uh, dealers, small dealers as well. So they're able to um, provide um, things like digital access uh, for clients to accounts. Uh, so they, they, as the banks can do, will provide accounts that you can uh, figure out what your position is um on your on your iPhone mm. look at your statements on your iPhone um you can um uh, get robo trading services um through the small dealers so they have become very nimble and effective in seeing technology and adapting and using it and it's been cost effective for them to do that on the institutional side what's interesting again the business models are changing quite a bit. Um, and it used to be that the, the small institutional firms were narrowly focused on mainly resource markets and they were more traditional. They, they did the underwritings and they sold them to institutional players and some of the retail players. And what you're seeing now is those institutional firms are broadening their research to cover companies like tech companies, biotech, high tech, 
pharma, real estate. So they're getting away from commodities. So they're getting more diversified in the underwritings they're doing. And interestingly, they're going downstream, or we should say upstream, I suppose. They're getting, they're going to smaller and smaller companies. So they're looking at private companies uh, where previously uh, they didn't cover private companies, but they're looking at private companies um, and finding uh, attractive um, private companies that they can uh, provide advice to. They can do what's termed merchant banking, where they bring these companies onto their, they buy positions in them, they incubate them and grow them and with the hope that they will do an IPO and sell them back into the market. And uh, we're seeing more and more of that. And we're also seeing on the, on the, on the investor side, where typically they were their retail clients and they were institutions. Now we're seeing them focus in on uh, private equity investors. So family companies in Canada, specialized kinds of um, institutions and players that are looking at uh, private equity. Um, so it's quite a change in mm -hmm. those business models. And the numbers this year uh, for 2008 show an interesting turnaround on the institutional side um, where there's been good gains in profitability for the uh, remaining roughly 50 institutional players. And on the retail side, it has been profitable for some time just because the wealth management business has been quite buoyant. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and to a large extent, of course, consumers now have come to expect a certain level of technological adoption. It's second nature, right? You want to be able to access mm -hmm. your finances and your wealth from your smartphone. I'm curious whether small independent firms, the challenges they might face when we see this demographic shift. So we see more retirements out of the workforce and maybe people wanting right. to access funds. And we also see yeah. younger millennials trying to navigate maybe the investment space for, for the first time. Well, you really hit the weakness um, or the, the Achilles heel, which is um, the ability of the retail firms to um, continue to take advantage of this uh, uh, wave and the the, the wealth wave, if, if you will, mm. um, which has uh, been driven by the baby boomers. Um, and there's a couple of um, challenges that they will face. Um, one of them that you just identified is increasingly the millennials are playing a larger and larger role in the capital markets. So it's we're going to have the millennials that are still going to be very big players uh, even as they get older um, but you're increasingly going to get uh, millennials coming in and they're different in the way that they will uh, buy services so the smaller firms and the bank owns and the larger integrated firms are going to have to uh, uh, orient themselves to catering more to millennials um, now, and what's particularly uh, a weak spot in the industry is we have an aging advisor so the challenge is to um, uh, bring on new younger advisors and uh, who would be more adaptable first of all in dealing with um, the Millennials because that's sort of closer to their age cohort and secondly they tend to be very productive uh, individuals they're in the early stages of their career but they have to be properly trained and that gets into a third issue or challenge uh, in the business, Haley, which is that 
you the whether you're your younger or an older advisor uh, and you're you're moving to the younger one the point of the, th- the matter is that uh, these wealth platforms are becoming uh, increasingly complex um, it starts out you want investment advice and you want to put it in the context of a financial plan but you're also looking for providing additional services. And this is particularly the case with the millennial, aging millennial, starting to look for things like estate planning. And once you get into that, that's wills, funeral planning. It's um, particular types of insurance, uh, critical illness insurance. And and a lot of these products can also apply to younger generation uh, of investors as well. But insurance becomes um, a more important a product, and of course, overriding all this is is tax planning and tax efficiency. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that you're making investments that take advantage of that. So that requires um, uh, firms to be training advisors more differently than they have before. It's not a matter of just relationship building and uh, training them uh, in uh, techniques for providing investment advice, but it's it's being able to identify these broader wealth management needs and uh, service the client in those. And that's needed uh, both for the client, but it's also uh, important for the firms as well because the by broadening out the services, you're broadening out the uh, the revenue uh, benefits to the uh, to the firm and the advisor as well. So there's lots of challenges out there that uh, firms are facing challenges both to the smaller firms and the larger firms. Very exciting place to be these days, actually. Yeah. Now, one of the things I've been following at at BIV is are the concerns around the integrity of Canada's mortgage market, concerns around the level of consumer debt that Canadians are carrying. As someone who represents uh, an industry, how are you watching these trends and how might they relate to, say, what the industry is going to be facing in the years ahead? Well, I think that's part and parcel of, um, uh, it's not the direct responsibility of an advisor, but an advisor is going to be looking at uh, the financial um, well-being of the client, is going to be providing financial advice, and in some ways, it's going to touch on these broader issues. Um, In other words, um, you're setting goals, and uh, I guess a key one is, uh, saving for an adequate retirement. So things like uh, your purchases um, and your leverage become important components. So the advisor is going to be providing um, advice um, uh, in in a in a more holistic way that will touch on uh, some of these um, other aspects uh, because it is it is a concern. I mean, you you do have a lot of Canadians not directly tied to their investment portfolios, but indirectly it is, obviously, if they're spending more and more of their income on financing debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's important they get the proper investment advice. Looking ahead at the next couple of years, Ian, what do you sort of foresee for independent dealers in Canada? Actually, I'm more optimistic than I was. I I, I guess because uh, we're seeing... um, these firms break new ground and we're seeing the wealth business um, have a very robust future. As I said, interestingly, just because you get into retirement doesn't mean you don't need wealth services. 
you go through these various phases of retirement, uh, Haley, and as you do, uh, there are more and more needs uh, that you identify you need. And it's so there's opportunities there for uh, advisors. And on the institutional side, um, as I said, um, the business uh, is uh, the dimension has widened quite dramatically beyond the sort of traditional small public company where it's including private companies and um, and um, different types of uh, investment product and, and whatever as well. And then we also have to remember that the whole capital markets are changing and evolving blockchain and mm-hmm. um, cryptocurrencies. And the blockchain one in particular, without getting into it, offers the potential for uh, more efficient uh trading of securities and clearing and settlement. And that has an attraction of, again, driving down costs the way technology has. So that's all to the benefit of uh, small dealers. So I think the future is uh, a fairly uh, bright one for the smaller firms. And that's good for Canada, good for the industry and good for the country. Mm -hmm. Ian, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Haley. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the questions. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. That's it for our show. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and listen to our episodes at BIV.com, where you can also find more business news across platforms. Thanks again for listening to BIV Today. I'm Haley Wooden. We'll be back next week. 